With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Michael Moynihan, in for Barry Weiss. And this is Honestly. It's been exactly four years since the first coronavirus death was reported. As the Chinese government scrambles to contain the virus, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing confirms the first American death, a 60-year-old who died in Wuhan. Meanwhile, flights carrying more Americans... Four years since we were told that wearing masks, even cloth ones, were essential to keeping us safe. The uniform wearing of masks, let's get, let's get it straight. They work, use them. Four years since we were told lockdowns were needed to protect us, that any inconvenience to society was outweighed by the lives saved. There's a mutuality and there's a recognition of our interdependence that requires of this moment that we direct a statewide order for people to stay at home. In three years since we were told that vaccines would prevent the transmission of COVID-19. If you've been fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. Let me repeat, if you are fully vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask. We now know that so much of what we were told in those years was, if not wrong, certainly debatable. But debate was not only discouraged, it was actively shut down. YouTube says it has had enough of vaccine misinformation on its site. Well, the company is taking down anti-vaccine videos and banning major accounts because it says it needs to, quote, remove egregious, harmful content. For most of us, all of this seems like a lifetime ago. But the problem is that here we are, four years later, millions of Americans suffered, more than a million died, and it's not clear we have any better understanding of what exactly went wrong. How was it that our leaders and our economy were so brutally unprepared for a global pandemic? That's what today's conversation is about. Today on Honestly, I'm talking to the Free Press's own Joe Nocera about his new book, co-authored with Bethany McLean, The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects. HCA, the country's largest for-profit hospital system, was up 38% from the previous year. And who it leaves behind. Mayor Garcetti and Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. And we need your help. We need somebody to do something about this. The Big Fail takes a critical look at what the pandemic uncovered about our leaders, our broken trust in government, in the vulnerability of the biggest economy in the world. Nocera also investigates the perverse incentives and devastating effects of hospital systems and nursing homes run by private equity firms, which makes him ask, does capitalism have its limitations when it comes to healthcare? And most importantly, are we able to learn our lesson from the COVID pandemic and do better when the next emergency hits us? We'll hear from Joe Nocera after the break. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, Joe, let's just start with the biggest possible question uh, the big fail is the name of the book. What is the big fail? I mean, there seems to be a lot of failures here, but what is the big one? Well, broadly speaking, it's America's failed response to the pandemic, which operates on multiple levels, as, as we show in the book. One level is the sort of establishments setting out a course of mitigation strategies that were untested and in many cases didn't work. And on a different level, it has to do with the nature of modern-day capitalism, which has been changed and somewhat perverted over the last 40 or 50 years in ways that have made hospitals care more about profit than patients, have made nursing homes the tool of private equity firms, and in the case of globalization, have left us uh, high and dry when we needed PPE, we couldn't get it because uh, over the course of the last 15 years, it had all been outsourced to Vietnam, China, and Malaysia. There's a sentence at the beginning of this book in the introduction that actually stopped me in my tracks when you say a central tenet of this book is that we could not have done better and pretending differently is a dangerous fiction. And that is could not have done better as a country in responding to COVID. What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of it has to do with understanding human behavior. There's two aspects of that. The first is our system was so fucked up that, that there's no way public health could get their shit together and have a decent pandemic response. It was just, it was not, not possible. And then, you know, the other thing is public health never took into account the way Americans act, the way they think, the way they operate, and for that reason, they were constantly telling people to do things that people were simply not willing to do. And it turns out a lot of those things were completely unnecessary. The, you know, the example that, that's the easiest to explain is the idea that you had to have sports arenas had to be emptied and sports had to be canceled because people would catch COVID. And that even after the vaccination the idea became that if you were vaccinated, you could go to an event, but if you were not vaccinated, you couldn't. But it turns out that the vaccine doesn't prevent transmission. So telling all these unvaccinated people that they couldn't go to a baseball game was not only punitive and not only infuriated them, it was meaningless. Or firing them if they didn't get vaccinated. In many cases, in New York City especially, 2,000 education department uh, workers got fired for refusing to be vaccinated, and 1,000 other city workers got fired. It's really kind of shocking. You know, right now in the UK, there's a parliamentary commission about the COVID response, and specifically about Prime Minister Boris Johnson's behavior and some of the people in his cabinet's behavior. We haven't really had 
something similar to that in the United States in any way of a commission that looks at what we got right and what we got wrong. So at the end of this, when we look at things that worked and didn't work, I mean, reading your book, you realize, man, we haven't had a conversation about the fact that we didn't need to have basketball stadiums half empty or people not in the audience at a late night talk show. I mean, was all that stuff totally unnecessary from your judgment? Well, a lot of it was, not all of it. Here's the way I, I break it down. Anything anybody did or said or recommended in March, April, May of 2000 was, you know, they get a, they get a mulligan. Yeah. We didn't know. The pandemic plan always called for closing of schools. Why? Because influenza kills kids. But by May of 2020, we knew that this pandemic did not kill kids, or not very many, and that it feasted on the elderly instead. And what should have happened is the public health people should have said, we're going to protect the elderly, and we're going to worry a little bit less about the kids and maybe even let them keep going to school because the damage done from not going to school outweighs the damage done by COVID. What happened to the people that were making those arguments? There were a number of people that, you know, you have a chapter in the book called the dissidents, a dissident scientists, and, you know, people of good faith that were making arguments that maybe these might not be the best responses to a pandemic. I mean, it seems to me that the response to those arguments was not very generous sometimes. Well, it was beyond not generous. Martin Koldoff, who is a very well-known epidemiologist and has done important work even for the CDC, uh, was essentially canceled, as they say. He wrote his first article on LinkedIn about why the strategy was wrong and proposing a different strategy. And the article was taken down. And not only that, but his, his own LinkedIn, whatever you call it, was eliminated. He was uh, delinked. Yeah, he was, he was delinked. So, <laughs> and Jay Bhattacharya had the same, a lot of his Stanford colleagues, you know, turned against him, wouldn't talk to him, unfacebooked him. And, you know, Fauci used to call them fringe scientists. Yeah. Which they most certainly weren't. One was from Harvard, the other was from Stanford. And a third member of that troika was from Oxford. Now, even today... What I'm finding on Twitter as little bits and pieces of the book get out there is that the same anger and the same polarization still exists with people saying, you know, how could you listen to Martin Koldorf? How could you listen to Beitop Bachataria? They got everything wrong. Well, actually, they didn't get everything wrong. They got a whole lot right. And we would have been far better served if we'd listened to them. I give a, a little praisey of what uh, Bhattacharya, Koldorf, and these so-called dissident scientists were arguing. Their core argument was that COVID is a thousand times more dangerous for someone who's 70 than someone who's seven. And that as you went down in age, uh, COVID became less and less dangerous. So their core argument was you needed to protect the elderly at all costs until there was a vaccine, and you needed to protect the immunocompromised. But everybody under the age of, say, 50 or 55 should be allowed to go about their work and should keep the society alive and should keep the economy alive and should keep schools going because these were vitally important needs for, for the society. And 
they make a secondary argument, which I find very persuasive, which is people died of other things in 2020 and 2021 besides COVID. And what we essentially had done is shut down the entire society because of this one disease, which indeed was bad, no question about it, but you know, cancer patients got untreated because they couldn't get in the emergency room because it was only treating COVID patients. Surgeries were not done. Uh, people got depressed. There was a lot of suicidal ideation among kids. On and on and on. So the, the point is, if you look at it holistically and think in terms of all the diseases besides just COVID, then focusing only on COVID to the exclusion of everything else was a terrible mistake. You know, it seems to me that the timing of this uh, with the Trump presidency kind of drove a lot of that with this focus on misinformation and disinformation. And the constant uh, chiming in of people to say that these are scientists that are peddling misinformation and being removed from things like YouTube and, and, and Twitter prior to Elon Musk owning it and things like even LinkedIn. I mean, did you get a sense of why the ferocity of this response, you know, managed to take people off of, you know, what, what we consider kind of public platforms at the moment. What was it that d did that? It seemed to be political. I would agree uh, 100%. It was political. Because Trump was so hated by the left, anything he said, they viewed the opposite to be the case. So when he said we need to get kids back into school, their, their instant response was, oh my God, we got to keep kids out of school. But it was more than that. It was it really became a blue, a blue state, red state thing. So if you were in a blue state, you felt like you were morally superior to the people in the red states because you wore a mask, because you stayed indoors, because you followed the rules, and didn't really think about what was happening to disadvantaged kids. You didn't really think about the guy in DoorDash, <laughs> who was essentially, if you want to think about it this way, risking his life so that you could lock down. The red states had the opposite view, you know? All this stuff the blue states are doing is bullshit. Social distancing is bullshit. Masks are bullshit. Lockdowns are bullshit. And the greatest example is when Florida reopened their beaches. And you saw the left go completely bonkers on Twitter. Hashtag Florida morons. Mm -hmm. Hashtag death Santas. And yet, you know, it's a very Trumpian nickname, isn't it? Death Santas. <laughs> going to the beach was about one of the safest things you could possibly do. You're outdoors, you're separated from other people, you're in your own little cubby, you're going into the water. It's, it's, it, it's frustrating that neither the left nor the right were willing to see any value to what the other side was saying. And to answer your original question about why isn't there a commission to figure out what happened, this is the reason. Because there's no bridging this gap between the two sides. And if they did have a commission, they would just wind up yelling at each other. Your book reminded me, towards the end of your book, you quote vice presidential then candidate Kamala Harris, making this crystal clear. On the campaign trail, she said, if the public health professionals tell us to take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us we should take it, I'm not taking it. Right. I, Which is so, pretty stark. so foolish. <laughs> pretty, so foolish. Pretty, that shows it's a little political. True. But, you know, when he suggested that you take some bleach. Yeah, that was probably a bad idea. 
I'm not an ivermectin, yeah. hydrochloroquine, bleach guy. No, so, I, yeah. nor am I. Yeah. And I, I'm a big believer. I mean, I believe the vaccine saved a lot of people, and it was hugely important. Although I think one thing we do in our book that the, the left doesn't largely admit is acknowledged that there are side effects for some people, and they should be taken seriously. And they, you, know, you shouldn't have a situation where one side says, Vaccines are perfect, which they're not. And the other side says vaccines are evil, which they're also not. Well, let's talk about that because that's a debate that's still kind of roiling is the debate over vaccines. I mean, Trump at times has taken credit for calling it the Trump vaccine. And as you point out in the book, they walked that back when he was booed on stage for, for saying that that right. is my vaccine. But Operation Warp Speed, people have given the Trump administration credit for. The vaccines now, though, um, you know, there's a booster uh, now that uh, the CDC has recommended that Americans get, and only 2% of Americans have. Uh, where are we when it comes to the efficacy of vaccines, the necessity of vaccines in certain populations, and as you said, the dangers of vaccines, if there are any? Well, again, if you're elderly, you should take the boosters. If you're not, you probably don't need them. You probably have immunity from having had COVID or from the vaccines that you took a while back. And if you're a kid, the potential myocarditis probably outweighs the necessity for the vaccine. You want to grab Fauci by the lapels and shake him and say, if only you had just been willing to make these distinctions, people would have believed you. Is it fair that conservatives have made him such a hate figure? It's probably a little unfair, but on the other hand, this was, <laughs> they called it a novel coronavirus. Mm -hmm. Novel means new. They had never seen it before. They showed no humility. And Fauci is the leader in that and saying, you know, I represent the science. If you say bad things about me, you're saying bad things about science. When they should have said, look, folks, there are things that we know and the things that we don't know. And as we learn more, we will tell you more. And as we understand more, we'll tell you more. But, you know, we don't know if masks work or not. We don't. You start the book with uh, mentioning Brett Stevens' column in the New York Times in the outrage that poured in after he said, you know, there was a large meta-study that said masks don't work. So is he wrong about that? I mean, the meta-study does say they basically don't work. I'm, a mask can work for an individual person, but not work for a society. If you had an N95 mask that you wore all the time, you're going to be pretty safe. But if you go to a restaurant and take the mask off to eat... Or if you're one of these people which was allowed, who wears, right? Yeah, yeah, which you had to do. I, how else are you going to put the food in your mouth? Yeah, I mean, it was allowed to to do that to eat on planes too. Keep the mask on, but you, you can take it off to eat. And or if you have a mask that's under your nose, or if you have a, a, a cloth mask, which absolutely do not work. And society wide, I think it's really fair to say that masks don't work. Whereas for individuals with the right mask and a real attention to it. It probably do work. I think people got the assumption too, or people have the assumption that our political leaders didn't believe this stuff either. They were telling us to do certain things and they didn't believe it. You mentioned that uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom was spotted at the French Laundry, a nice posh restaurant outside of San Francisco. And he said, well, no, I was outside. And it turned out he wasn't outside when photos were published. And, you know, the same thing is true in the UK when Boris Johnson was telling people to lock in and they were having parties in Number 10 Downing Street. I mean... And, and the epidemiologist Neil Ferguson was sleeping with his mistress. 
That's uh, right. That, yeah. was the, that was actually the first example. <laughs> and he's the one who did the study that tried to push everybody to go into lockdown. Yeah, I mean, I, I give him a little bit of slack on that. There's a few things that you can allow yourself to, <laughs> to, to cheat on your wife and the science. Um, <laughs> You know, but you have these initial, and I, you know, look, it's understandable that the initial uh, response to this is the novel coronavirus, is the new coronavirus, is something you don't quite know and understand. We should be kind of, you know, broad-minded about the way people responded to it. But it seems like a lot of people just didn't change their beliefs as the science changed. There was a sense that the science was a static thing. There was truth. I believe in science. In this house, we believe in science. But the science on this was constantly moving. I mean, Neil Ferguson comes out with a uh, study that says the fatality rate was going to be, what, 2 to 4%? Wasn't that the Right, initial? and that 2 million Americans were going to die by, uh, I think it was August 2020. That didn't end up happening. <laughs> no, it, no, it no, didn't. No, it didn't. And, and, you know, the dissidents like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, they, I mean, they were more correct on this, right? Uh, yes, they were. Uh, they were much more correct. Again, their basic thesis was the level of infection and, and even death is low enough that we should not shut down the entire society. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to get into D.A. Henderson, but if you do, he's the guru of this, of this thesis. Yeah, tell us uh, where this comes from and tell us about D.A. Henderson. Sure. D.A. Henderson, who's probably the greatest epidemiologist of the 20th century, when he was in his 30s, the CDC loaned him out to the World Health Organization, and they put him in charge of a program that nobody thought would actually work, which was to eliminate smallpox in the world. And he did it. His theory was, his strong belief was, that if you shut down a society and you don't have really good leadership people are going to panic. Mm -hmm. And that panic is going to lead to nothing good. And that you're far better served trying to keep as much of society going as possible while also understanding that uh, there are going to be certain segments of the population that need to be protected until a vaccine becomes available. So he, he's kind of the, the North Star of the thesis that uh, Koldorf and Bajataria ran with. And because the establishment had become so wedded to lockdowns and masks and the other mitigation measures that they had um, imposed on the American public, they just couldn't bring themselves to say, you know, let's talk to these guys. Let's, let's figure this out. Instead, they said, you know, our way is the right way and your way is, is evil. So let's just do a top-line thing on this. Did lockdowns work? No, they didn't. They absolutely didn't. Especially if you uh, consider them in the context of uh, what's called excess mortality. In other words, you don't just count COVID deaths, you count all deaths that took place in 2020 and 2021. And if you do that, you discover that the U.S. Uh, had an excess mortality of 15%. Great Britain had an excess mortality of 10%. And Sweden, the country <laughs> the establishment loved to beat up on because they refused to lock down, had an excess mortality of 4%. The lowest in Europe? The lowest in Europe. That's right. So Sweden's, Sweden was beaten up on, and Anders Tegnell, the public health official that took all the slings and arrows, um, for you know, making this kind of voluntary. 
Sweden is a country with very high trust. That's often pointed out. Uh, but it's a, you know, a country where people trust the government too. And the government said, hey, this is what you should do, but we're not going to require you to do it. And it was constantly the punchline because it was so much worse in Sweden than it was in their neighboring countries, uh, Norway, Denmark, Finland. At the beginning. At the beginning. But that, that, even, that all evened out by the end. And here's the other thing about Sweden. Again, going back to your trust point and why trust is so important. When Sweden got the vaccine, 97% of the population took it because they trusted their government. In the U.S., I mean, we didn't do too badly. I think it was 75 or 80%, at least for the first round. But today, nobody believes the boosters are doing any good, and nobody's using them. And that, gets to your, that also gets to your, your interesting point about how people's behavior leads, almost leads the government instead of follows. Yeah. I mean, I remember being on the subway when the mask mandate was still in force in New York City, I would say a third of the people on the subway had masks. The other two thirds had already abandoned them. So by the time the city and the state say you don't need a mask anymore, people are like, hey, fellas, where you been? Well, one of the things that I think for me and a number of my friends were that we didn't know anyone who was hospitalized or dying of COVID in our age cohort. Um, certainly did know people that were, were, were older. And we didn't need statistics really to tell us or public officials to tell us. It's just that, you know, we were going out and we knew people that got COVID and none of them died. And some of them had it bad and some of them, you know, just didn't even really notice and tested positive and moved on with their life. I mean, that seems to be, for me, what was, what was guiding things in my social circle, for sure. Well, you know, there is another aspect to that. Um, I knew somebody a legal writer who had a terrible case of COVID right at the beginning. Yeah. And he was on a ventilator for uh, five weeks. And people thought, the doctors thought he was going to die. And he did survive. I mean, but by July, say, or August, they didn't use, they weren't using ventilators anymore. And as a matter of fact, saying that ventilators might actually be more negative than positive. Right. The point is that hospitals and doctors and nurses um, figured out better and more efficient ways to treat COVID patients as we went along. So there was, you know, less death as COVID transpired. I do want to throw in this ventilator anecdote because I love it so much. One thing that happened early in the pandemic was a lot of companies wanted to help their country. Yeah. So they wanted to make things that would help America. And Xerox had some factory that was shut down. And so they decided, with the urging of the state government, they decided to make ventilators for the state. They made all these ventilators, and not a single ventilator was ever used. <laughs> I mean, I remember the city saying that they had a stockpile of them, and they were trying to sell, sell them or give them away. I mean, I went, I went down to the Brooklyn Navy Yard when de Blasio was speaking at a, some company down there that had switched to making PPE. And I interviewed the owner of the company and, and just a lovely guy who said, I'm doing my patriotic duty and uh, trying to, to fill in the holes. And people did come together in that way. I don't know if it was necessary. But that actually gets to a point of your book that I think is probably the... the um, the most controversial from my perspective, and it's something that people have been you know, promoting the book, say that you and your co-author, Bethany McLean, say that this is kind of an indictment of American capitalism in a way, how America responded to COVID. Fill in kind of the details of that. 
Well, uh, are we going to argue about this? I tr- I'm hoping we do, because, I mean, we agree on okay, everything me else. Okay, too. I know, this is, this is, too, this is too much of a love too, fest. Too I, love show. I, let's, I, can't, I can't handle it. Honestly, you do your Fidel Castro impression right now, so we can sure, get into you it. Sure, too All right, I am not, anti, I am not an anti-capitalism capitalist, by God. I've been a business reporter my whole life. But I, over the last 10 years or so, I've become so angry at private equity in particular and what it's done to American workers and what it's done to American companies and, and how they extract uh, money from companies and giving them nothing in return, enrich themselves, and, you know, Toys R Us goes out of business. When I saw what happened with the nursing homes which private equities dove into in the early 2000s, I, w- I was really pretty horrified that, you know, they would buy a nursing home, they would immediately sell the land on which the nursing home stood yeah. uh, to a REIT. So now the nursing home has to pay rent on land they owe, and they have to pay back the debt that the private equity firm borrowed to buy the nursing home. So suddenly they have all this money they have to pay out and it's a nursing home. And, and so how do you do that? How do you do that in a nursing home? Well, you, you can fiddle with Medicare. You can, you can try to game the system and a lot of do that. But you also wind up cutting back staff, cutting back nurses, cutting back the number of times you go visit a patient. And the inevitability of nursing homes being a, a locus for disease is always there. But the private equity factor just heightened it in ways that I found to be terribly wrong. Now, let me move to the hospitals. Yes, there were private equity firms in hospitals, but what really happened in the hospitals was that starting in the late 1960s, hospitals started to become for-profit corporations, chains. HCA is the classic example, tenant, you know. And so suddenly, quarterly earnings is what matters, and year-over-year profits. And again, this gets in the way of good patient care because you have to sort of think, uh, you know, I can, I'm going to outsource my entire ER department. You know, I'm going to eliminate MRIs. I'm going to merge two hospitals and wipe out half the nursing staff. So it's not that I'm against capitalism, but I did wind up thinking that there are some industries that perhaps shouldn't be under the shareholder value umbrella. And I certainly would think nursing homes and hospitals are at the top of the list. You know, the, the nursing home that did the best in the entire country was in San Francisco. One of the biggest nursing homes in the country. Might be the biggest. It's got 700 patients. But it's run by the city. So it had plenty of staff, plenty of nurses, plenty of care. And to this day, at least when the book uh, went to press, of the 700, only 11 people had died of COVID. Well, that seems to be the only thing the city of San Francisco can do well. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've been there anytime recently, but I don't know how to trust that. Uh, I actually have been there recently, and it is, it is a sad... I, I, I used to love San Francisco. Yeah, I did too. Oh, I, man, I won't go back you, now. But, I mean, the criticism seems to be with the American health insurance system. I mean, is that not essentially what you're criticizing in this book, is that unlike European countries where you have a kind of nationalized health insurance system, this country does not, which leads to a lot of fraud and a lot of people trying to maximize profits over patient care? Well, 
We did not get into single payer in the book. My God, there's one controversy we, we avoided. Yeah. But to my mind, the problem with the insurance system is that you and I don't feel the bill. They feel the bill. And what the hospitals have done is, you know, basically hold up the insurance companies and say, if you don't pay for X, we won't let you do Y. And so uh, the insurance companies always fold. And then in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, they don't even want to deal with because it doesn't pay enough. So all Medicaid patients go wind up in hospitals, uh, you know, the have-not hospitals that struggle and that were the ones that were really overburdened with COVID patients, by the way. And so should we reform the insurance system in America? Of course we should, and so, but I, I'm not going to get into how we do that. But should we also reform hospitals and nursing homes? Absolutely. So is it more that when the rest of us were thinking that we're all in this together and banging pots and pans out the window for nurses, that there was a sliver of the population, mostly people in private equity, who are seeing this as an opportunity to make a ton of money? No, no, no. They, they weren't. They did not make a ton of money during COVID. The, the damage had been done by the time COVID arrived. The nursing homes were already understaffed and under, you know, they had all these problems. Now, the other thing that happened, however, is that a lot of these companies, the hospital chains and the nursing home chains, they got money from the federal government that helped fill that gap. So they really didn't lose that much during COVID. They just didn't make the kind of money they'd been making beforehand. More with Joe Nocera after the break. We'll be right back. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Globalization comes in for a bit of a beating in your book, too. I mean, when you saw the needs of an entire society of 330 million people that was shut down, you know, people not leaving their houses and not working... You kind of go in on globalization, particularly on, on supplies, on things like PPE. Talk about that a little bit. Well, basically, the economics establishment and also the political establishment, going back to Bill Clinton and even before, embraced globalization with a passion. NAFTA and, and China entering the, the WTO. And for American companies, this was a godsend because they could outsource their labor costs basically. And the Chinese could make things at one-tenth the price. The American workers were thrown out of work. The factories were closed down. But the companies made a lot more money, maximizing shareholder profit again. They also created a just-in-time supply chain so that the parts would arrive you know, moments before they were needed. So you didn't have to have a lot of inventory. So you saved yourself inventory costs. And what was lacking, what nobody thought about, was the need for resilience. If you're a country that's gonna completely depend on other countries for basic, important goods like semiconductors, like PPE, like all kinds of things, 
if you were going to do that, then you were at their mercy when there was an emergency. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I, want, I want to tell you a story, if I could, that's related to this. It's not exactly on point, but it's related to this. There was a company called Demitech uh, in Miami that makes uh, surgical supplies, and they decided that they wanted to do their part for the country by making surgical masks. So they bought the equipment, and they rented a factory. This is a family-run firm. They rented a big factory. They hired 200 people. They got lots of machines, and they started turning out masks. And of course, during the pandemic, they had plenty of customers. And they were really happy. They thought this was, you know, the future. And the customers said, you know, the hospital said, oh, we'll be with you forever, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, the minute the mask shortage was over, the Chinese started selling masks for a penny. Demitech lost all, most if not all of its customers. And they had to lay off the 200 workers. And they had to close up the factory. And the equipment just sat there. And the, the guy at Demitech said to me, you know, he said, it's not just the loss of the money that hurts. It's the loss of this expertise. These people knew how to do this stuff. They were really good at it. Mm. Now they're off going doing something else and they'll never come back and do it again. And that's a loss for the country. We didn't have um, huge shortages though, as I sort of expected uh, at the beginning. I mean, you couldn't find hand sanitizer, but the market kind of responded and people close to me who were making gin started making hand sanitizer and then there was a glut of it on the market. Uh, you didn't have a lot of um, empty shelves. Well, that's true, but uh, there's a distinction between hospital masks and the kind of mask that you could buy in a drugstore. And the hospital-style masks remained uh, short for quite a while, actually. Especially the N95s. I mean, you, you and I would never wear an N N95 for a length of time because it's so unbearable. But if you're a hospital, you're wearing them all the time. And that, that's where the real shortage was. Well, this kind of bridges nicely into the advice that came from public health officials. I mean, everybody remembers that the CDC told us that masks didn't work and were not necessary. And later said that that wasn't true, the opposite was true, and they were saying that so we wouldn't panic and make a run on masks, which apparently happened anyway. I mean, wasn't there a point at which the public health officials started losing the trust of the American people because they said so many things that were so contradictory. Oh, I think that's 100% true. There were so many absurdities. But the mask thing is what sticks in people's minds. It really does. Because they never said, you know, we don't know enough about masks. They said, ah, you don't need them. You know, and then they turned around and said, oh, my goodness, you need them, you need them. And then two years later, they said, oh, by the way, cloth masks never worked. And it's like, it's like there's no credibility there. And that's when people start rolling their eyes, you know? Kyrie Irving, because of New York's COVID rules, remember, he refused to be vaccinated. So <laughs> under New York's rules, he couldn't play in the Brooklyn Net home games because he was an employee of a New York company. But the opposition didn't have to be vaccinated. Mm -hmm and the people in the stands didn't have to be vaccinated. So Kyrie Irving would actually go to the game, sit in the stand unvaccinated, watching his vaccinated teammates play an unvaccinated opposition. So people, people aren't stupid. They see that and they shake their heads and they say, who, who, why am I believing anything these people say? 
And the same is true of Novak Djokovic going to play in Australia, not allowed into the country for for uh, not being vaccinated. And that was kind, that was long after. Was that long after we knew that the vaccinations were not actually not preventing transmission? I don't think so, actually. But with the one that kills me is that you know in the U.S. he was allowed to play. He was allowed to play in 2021, but banned in 2022. So, I mean, what was the idea behind this? I mean, when we, we didn't, you, you mentioned in the book that the CDC says that this will prevent transmission. This is the necessity of getting a vaccine. And you say that they didn't actually have any evidence that this was true. The thing you got to remember is that when the vaccines were tested for efficacy, they were never tested for transmission. The phase three test was only about death and disease. So I think it probably took the federal government, the CDC, the public health people by surprise when it turned out that COVID remained transmissible even after you'd been vaccinated. But this is another classic example. We all knew it before they said it because we were, and once Omicron came, which was I think four times more uh, catchable, I don't know what the right term is. Transmissible, I, I guess, yeah. yeah. Then the, its predecessor, Everybody got COVID. I mean, I didn't know anybody who didn't get COVID. Some got a little bit sick, some sneezed. I myself was asymptomatic. One of the things they didn't do was take into account people's lived experience. You know, if the entire population is saying, I'm getting COVID and I'm fine, and they're saying, you still have to wear a mask, you still have to lock down, you still have to stand six feet apart, people are just rolling their eyes. Let's talk about how COVID was hitting sort of poor and minority communities in a disproportionate way. Why was that happening? I mean, obviously there's nothing genetic about this. Was it a, was it racist or racism was built into the response and the treatment? Was it the way that these uh, communities, I mean, you also do mention that people who were poorer and immigrants couldn't work on Zoom, couldn't work from home. So why was it that it was transmitting and killing people at a much higher rate amongst minority and immigrant communities? Well, one important reason is that immigrant communities and minority communities often live in multi-generational households so that if the mom gets COVID but she's, she's not doing too bad or she doesn't know she has COVID because she's asymptomatic, then grandma gets it and she's really, really sick and maybe dies. That was a big reason. Another reason is that they had to go to work. Meat packers had a, a very high number of deaths and people with, with significant COVID because they were labeled essential workers and they had to go to work every day. And yeah, they had a mask on, but they're standing next to each other and they're chopping meat and, you know, it's pretty easy to transmit. You know, FedEx drivers would be, you know, in the garage packing their trucks every morning, uh, on and on and on. And again, I'm going to cite San Francisco uh, in a good way. Because of the AIDS crisis, there was a degree of trust between the disadvantaged in San Francisco and the public health community. And San Francisco did a really good job of finding communities that were at risk, testing them, isolating people who needed to be isolated, and then make sure they all got vaccinated once vaccinations were, were available. The rest of the country didn't do that so well. One of the most controversial politicians throughout the COVID pandemic and remains controversial because uh, he's running for president now is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. 
Ron DeSantis to his many, many opponents on Twitter and in the media. How did Florida end up doing? Because during the pandemic, anybody who was paying attention, and if you if you were reading the kind of mainstream media, you got the impression that Florida was where you went to die because the governor didn't take this seriously. When you looked at this after it all kind of, the smoke had kind of cleared, what did you make of uh, DeSantis's uh, COVID legacy? Let me talk about the legacy first, and then I want to go back and talk about him during the pandemic. If you adjust for age, and that's the only proper way to do it, California has 15% elderly, Florida has 21% elderly. If you adjust for age, California and Florida are just about the same in terms of deaths per 100,000. There's really not much difference. And a lot of people in Florida uh, were very happy, despite the higher risk that they were allegedly taking, to be there and to be able to be in what was fundamentally an open society. So the legacy is he did just fine. He did just fine. California would have a stretch of terrible COVID and then it would fade. Florida would have a stretch of COVID and then it would fade. To this day, nobody knows what drives these ups and downs of COVID. It's, it's, it's a mystery. So when you say, well, it was because Ron DeSantis stopped the lockdown, that's bullshit. There's no rhyme or reason to it. DeSantis did what he did, I think, for the right reasons. He really did understand the science. He really did reach out and talk to a lot of scientists and, and come to conclusions about the balance between the risk to people's health and the importance of keeping the economy together. Um, you know, he's one of the few governors who, who said, I'm not going to be driven completely by, quote unquote, follow the science. I think that was really good. Once he started to get all this praise and all this talk about how he might be a presidential candidate, I truly think it went to his head. And he started to do some really stupid things, like start that fight with Disney and, you know, some of the legislation, the anti-gay legislation, the... Uh, it, it was... It, for someone like me, who admired what he had done at the beginning of the pandemic, it was disheartening to see him turn into this um, caricature of a right-wing governor. What about Trump? What's his legacy? I mean, he obviously gave us Operation Warp Speed, which, as I mentioned before, he's tried to run away from, in a way, because a lot of his constituents are not big vaccine fans. But, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, he was roundly criticized every night in the media as being somebody who wasn't taking this seriously and didn't understand the science. Uh, you mentioned the teachers union and teachers union official in LA saying the Trump administration who wants us to go back to school is anti-science, despite the fact that the science appeared to be on the side that was opposite of the teachers union. What is his kind of legacy when it comes to COVID? Good, bad, in the middle somewhere? It's not great. I mean, the thing about Operation Warp Speed is to a surprising degree, he actually left them alone. And that's why it was so successful. He didn't butt in. He didn't say you have to have it done by November. He, you know, they told him who to hire. He hired those people. The Defense Department was hugely important in logistics. The great triumph, by the way, of Warp Speed has less to do with creating the vaccines, which turned out to be pretty easy, and a lot more to do with creating the manufacturing facilities, which Moderna, for instance, didn't have a clue and really need the federal government's help and its money. But, you know, a guy who says, maybe try some bleach, a guy who promotes, you know, quack remedies, 
a guy who sidelines any scientist who speaks out, like the woman at the CDC, you know, she was never allowed to speak again because she spoke the truth. I, I, I can't give him too much credit. He was right that schools should be open, but, you know, in classic Trump fashion, he said it. They held a day-long conference about it, and that was the end. No follow-up. Would the vaccines have been created and created in that same time period without government intervention? No. Um, Pfizer might have, but if you were going to have a full-on D-Day kind of approach, uh, you had to have more than Pfizer. And every company except Pfizer took the government's money, yeah. and they needed it. And don't forget, the government also had to approve the vaccines. So you needed the government involved to know what they were doing in terms of, and, and because everything was on such a fast track, the government had to really be in there with the scientists. And indeed, one of the scientists wound up sharing the patent with Moderna, a government scientist. So they were important. But I mean, and, and to be clear, the importance was also assuring these vaccine or these pharmaceutical companies that they would buy a certain number of vaccines, correct? 100%. And that was kind of, was that the most instrumental part of it? Is that, you know, you can't possibly fail here if you devote all of your time, money and resources to actually developing a vaccine and it's, you know, at the expense of a lot of other things. Well, yeah, but if you didn't get the vaccine approved by the FDA, you weren't going to get any money. So you still had to do it right. Vaccines historically don't make money for companies and companies that, for instance, made a, an Ebola vaccine or uh, various other pandemic vaccines have wound up losing money because the pandemic faded so fast, nobody actually needed it. When you extract all the politics from this and all the kind of failures and the, the recriminations and counter-recriminations and people debating this stuff in a very unscientific way, where do we stand now for the next pandemic? I mean, have we come out of this in a way that is considerably stronger and have we learned lessons from the failures of the past three years? Well, we should have, but I don't think we really have. If you have another pandemic anytime soon, the populace isn't gonna to listen to anything public health says because their experience tells them that public health isn't telling them what they need to do, you know? Whose failure is that? I think it's everybody's. I think it's the society's failure. I mean, we're a polarized society. The same issues that cause our politics to be so horrible or what caused so much of the problems with the pandemic. And until that heals, I don't really see how you can have a pandemic strategy that the whole country will buy into. In 2019, Jennifer Nuzzo, who was a real talking head during COVID and is a really terrific epidemiologist, she's at Brown University now, she was in charge of a big report that actually put this in writing. It said, we have all these mitigation strategies, but we really shouldn't be using them until we know whether they work or not. We've been through a pandemic. We still don't know if they work or not. That, to me, is a tragedy. So would you recommend some kind of commission that looks at all this stuff and says what we got right and what we got wrong? Or are we too politicized that it would just be a political process and we would get nothing out of it but, you know, cable news hits of people arguing about it? I, I don't know. I, I think we should try. I do think we should try. But, you know, the, the Republicans did have a, some kind of a committee, COVID-19 committee, but all they cared about was, you know, did it start in Wuhan? Yeah. Which... I'm one of the rare people who thinks that's a pointless argument because 
1917, the influenza pandemic started on a military base in Kansas. Yeah. I mean, it's a so, pointless, I mean, it's a pointless argument as far as, you know, where it gets us now and how we respond to it, but less pointless when you realize that people who had said that that might be a possibility or seems to me like the most likely possibility were shut out of the debate. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. It was, it was the same, the same thing that happened to Martin Kulldorff. I totally agree with you. Even the head of, of the CDC, wasn't it, who said he always thought that the number one likely possibility was the lab, and even he got shut down? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God. I realized that it was way too politicized when Jon Stewart went on Stephen Colbert's show and said, you know, look, if the logical thing is, you know, maybe it's the Wuhan Virology Lab where they, it's in the title of the actual company. Maybe that's where it started. And the response from somebody who's done nothing but political kind of anti-MAGA comedy for so many years, he responded, this is um, Stephen Colbert, responded, I didn't know I was having Senator Ron Johnson on the show. So it was immediately presumed right. that you have to be a Republican to believe something like this. Bethany and I, Bethany and I got the same thing recently where somebody tweeted, haven't you noticed that all the positive comments about your lockdown thesis is by... A, a, extreme right-wingers? Shouldn't that tell you something? And I wrote back and, and said, you know, what it tells me, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a society where it didn't matter which side the commenters were on? Well, all that mattered was what the data said. My old mentor, Charlie Peters, who was the Barry Weiss of his time on the left, you know, he used to say, because we were all, all his kids as we were, we were all in our, our mid-20s and we're new at this and when somebody in a different political uh, situation, in a different political side, would, would write in something agreeing with something we said, and we'd kind of freak out, and Charlie's would say, you know, you should be happy about this. Mm. It should be happy about this. You're not, you, you, you've gotten beyond politics. You're writing about truth, about real things. And um, that's been my attitude ever since. The Twitter files that were published by the Free Press and a few other people, uh, showed some kind of high-level government intervention into the narrative and the debate about COVID. You didn't mention that in the book. Uh, what did you take away from those that, that reporting and those Twitter files that were released by people like the free press? I'm an extreme free speech guy. So I thought it was abhorrent. I don't know what else to say. It's just um, you look at the dissidents who were shut down, turned out to be right. Mm. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. There's no place for the government in this, and free speech should be free speech. Yeah, I don't know if I would have predicted maybe five years ago that the most pernicious word in the next five years would be misinformation as a way of yeah. shutting down debate and no one establishing who the person is that supplies the actual information and who decides what is misinformation. Let's not forget that Gavin Newsom uh, promoted a law that would have punishment for doctors who use misinformation. Yeah. Gavin Newsom Shocking. does not come out of this book looking great, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? All right, Joe Nocero, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Joe for coming on the show today. His new book is The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. Please check it out. I highly recommend it. And thanks, as always, for listening. 
If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new, if it challenged you or made you consider a new perspective, that's great. Please consider sharing it with your friends and family and using it to have a conversation of your own. And if you want to support Honestly, there's just one way to do it. Go to thefp.com and become a subscriber today. I'm Michael Moynihan. See you soon. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.